0: Every belief system in the world is based upon redemption. But here's the difference. Every belief system in the world believes redemption either comes by your efforts or your discovery. One of the two. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons to Himself through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, in which He has made us precious in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, And that's as far as we'll get today. You probably already recognize there that it's an awkward place to stop. Paul hasn't finished his thought. The thought is going to continue on into verse eight. But that's as far as we get from here. This is a extremely helpful and edifying passage of Scripture. One that is so well worth your time to commit as much as possible of this book to memory. I promise you, you will be eternally glad for every single word of this passage, of this book that you are able to commit to memory. Again, the goal, the blessing, the true value is not reaching the end of the book and saying, look at what I memorized. The value is the work that has to be put into memorizing it and how much you've got to pour over the words and turn the words over and over in your mind. That is the true value of memorization of Scripture, particularly memorizing longer portions. So this morning we'll take a look at verse 7, and you probably already noticed in just reading through that that we're taking a shift, we're taking a change. There's a change in focus that happens between verse 6 and verse 7. All of this, as we've said before, is one sentence. And so Paul's not stopping a sentence and starting a new paragraph, but he is changing his stream of thought. We could almost think of it like smaller subparagraphs within this longer sentence, and there's three. Each of these smaller subparagraphs ends with a statement of praise. Verse 6 is the first one with this statement of praise that comes as Paul sort of finishes the first set of thoughts. Verse uh, 12 is going to be the second uh, statement of praise, and then verse, verse 14, those coinciding with the three sort of subparagraphs that the, the passage falls into. So as we look at this transition from the first set of thoughts to the second set of thoughts, we think a little bit about how it is that we divide this up and how we make this separation. And there's a number of ways that we could do this. First of all, we could look first at uh, verses 3 through 6, and we could see that front and center there is the work of the Father. The work of the Father in His choosing and His electing and His predestining unto adoption, the love of the Father that we talked about, the grace that is the context for all of that. That's really centered upon the work of the Father. Starting in verse 7, we we sort of take a shift and we focus over onto the work of the Son. And so from verse 7 down through verse uh, 10, even 11, and into 12, we're focusing on the work of the Son. And then verses uh, 13 and 14 is going to focus primarily on the work of the Spirit. Those aren't really hard and fast separations. There's overlap that takes place in there. And you can even see that as we look at the work of the Father in verses 3 through 6, You can even see that when Paul was focused on the work of the Father, even then the entire passage has a Christological focus. So as he's talking about the work of the Father, everything that the Father does is said to be in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved, in Jesus. So the work of the Father is said to be the work of the Father that's done in Jesus and so also the work of the Spirit because this is the pattern of Scripture. Christ is the focus of all of our attention and all of our worship. The Father does what the Father does, but we focus primarily upon Christ. And even what the Father does is said to be done in Christ. Likewise, the Spirit. Why is this? Because Jesus is the visible manifestation of the God that we cannot see. So this is by design. The Father is Spirit. Jesus says to Philip, no one's ever seen the Father. The Holy Spirit obviously is spirit. No one's ever seen the spirit. But Jesus we've seen. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the God that we can't see. Therefore, all of the activity of the Godhead is in a sense funneled to us through Christ. And so we see it through Christ. He is our central focus. The, the scriptures themselves focus entirely, or not entirely, but fo- focus primarily upon Christ because He is the manifestation of God to us. The perfect, complete manifestation of everything that it means to be God. So we talked about the work of the Father in verses three through six, but all of that was in the Son. And then we'll get to the work of the Spirit. So we could divide it up that way. The work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit. Or we could also divide it up this way. Verses three through six is the work of God that happened before the creation of time. This all in verse three through six is said to be before the foundation of the world. Remember how we talked about this was in the mind of God, the purpose of God. God purposed, God intended to do these things before He created anything. Therefore, God purposed to have an elect people upon Himself. He purposed to predestine those people unto adoption. And so these were the the will of God, in the mind of God, before anything existed. Now we move in verse 7 to not what God has done before the creation of time, but what God is doing and has done in time. So beginning from verse 7, we are now going to think about God's work, God's activity within the context of time, both time past and time present. And then we'll move from this on to focusing on God's work and God's activity that is to come in the eternal future. So that's the second way that we could divide all this up. A third way that we could divide all this up is that verse 3 through 6 talk about the purpose of God. They talk about God's electing purpose, His predestining purpose, His purpose of adoption. All of these things took place in the mind of God, in the purpose of God. Beginning from verse 7, Paul begins to talk about how it is that God brings about those things that He purposed before He created anything. So we could look at it this way. We could divide it up into God's purpose before time began, God's intention, God's will. Now we move over to how it is in reality. God brings about the things that He intended before creating anything. And then we'll move finally to how God culminates all of that after the end of this epoch or this era or this time is over. So those are at least three different ways that we could divide this up. And there's more, trust me. But those are three, I think, probably helpful ways for us to get our minds around all of this material because God, uh, Paul says quite a lot in these verses and it's helpful for us as finite humans to sort of break this down into more manageable chunks. So we move from the first chunk today into the second chunk, which is, again, verse 7, in Him we have redemption in His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And so that is going to be the focus of our time this morning and even past this morning we're going to have to spend some time thinking well about the idea of redemption. What does redemption mean? Redemption is probably the most often talked about, the most often thought about, the most often preached about aspect of our salvation. But Paul turns to this topic now, and even though we are very familiar and very well versed in talking about our redemption in Christ's blood, nevertheless, there are... Certainly some helpful points for us to look at from Paul's text to us this morning. So as we think about this, what, what really is happening as I see it in this passage is Paul is worshiping the Father and his worship of the Father is really driven by his contemplating or his pondering of different facets or aspects of our life in Christ. All of this passage is really talking about our life in Christ, the new life that we are given in Christ. But yet Paul is looking at this through a number of different facets. Think of a diamond. And you know the beauty of a diamond? You ever seen a picture of a raw diamond as it comes out of the ground? Not very impressive, right? The beauty of a diamond is its cut, right? The cut and the polish of the diamond, If you ladies have a diamond, and you you can relate to this, when you admire your diamond, what do you do? You always turn it, don't you? That is the beauty of a diamond, in turning it. If you just look at a diamond, even a cut diamond, lying on a table or on a a tablecloth or something that's just stationary, then it's not all that impressive. The diamond is impressive as you turn it in the light and the different angles of light show you all the brilliant colors that emanate from it and the different uh, glarings and gleamings that are that come from the cut of the diamond so a diamond is symbolic in this sense of our salvation of our life in Christ it is not one dimensional and if the modern church has made any error today it is that we have gradually sort of fallen into the habit of thinking about our life in Christ one-dimensionally in the sense of repentance and forgiveness of sin that comes to us through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the promise of eternal life afterwards. That is absolutely true. That is the most glorious truth that mankind has ever known. However, that is only one facet of the diamond. That is only one aspect of the diamond. And largely, many Christians today, I believe, have now taken that to be the only facet of salvation and life in Christ. But Paul is showing us a different way. He's showing us a better way. He's showing us how to praise God with the full force of all of the beauty of that diamond. As Think of Paul in this passage as holding up the diamond of life in Christ and turning it. And saying, look at that. Election. Adoption. God's love. Redemption. And as he turns it, he sees these different beautiful, colorful aspects of our life in Christ. And that is what's driving his praise. Because God is honored and pleased with all praise, is he not? Any, any genuine praise honors God. God is pleased by any genuine praise that we offer up to him. Even the most simplistic, even ignorant type of praise. God is still honored by that if it's genuine praise, right? Think with me for just a moment about the blind man in John chapter 9, who praises Jesus, and how does he praise Jesus? He didn't even know Jesus' name. They say, who is this that, that healed you? They're coming and they're, they're accosting this, this man that was born blind, but now he can see, and they're accosting him and they say, who did, who healed you? He said, I don't even know. I don't, I don't know what his name was, but here's what I do know. I was blind and now I see. So his praise of Jesus, extends no further than that one experience of being given his sight. He doesn't even know Jesus' name. He says, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. I don't know. You know. All I know is I was blind, now I see. So his praise of Jesus is about as simplistic and as ignorant as it can get. To not even know if Jesus is not a sinner or to not even know Jesus' name, I'm not sure how you could get more ignorant of Jesus, and I'm using that word in the classic sense, more ignorant of Jesus than that. However, we need to be careful to remind ourselves that that man, when he spoke those words of praise to Jesus, had had new life in Christ for maybe a day or two, maybe a few hours. And so that was the extent of what he knew of the man who gave him sight at that point. The Bible is very sharp in its rebuke of those believers who should have progressed to a point that they understand their life in Christ much more fully and much more completely, and they understand the facets of the diamond. Remember what the writer to the Hebrews has to say to those believers? He says, you you should have by this point been teaching others about Jesus. But rather than that, you still need milk. You can't even digest meat. I still need to bring you milk. Or he says to the Corinthian believers, I didn't come to you with meat. I came to you with milk because that's all you can digest, right? So the Bible is sharp in its rebuke of those Christians who should have come to a point of greater understanding of their life in Christ and the character of God, but yet have not. Likewise, the Bible also affirms to us in places like Jeremiah 9 that God is delighted when His children know and understand Him. So... Paul's praise to the Father throughout this section is a praise that is very mature and very informed and is praising God for his work of life in Christ from multiple different aspects and multiple different facets. And this is the praise which God delights in and honors God. Not that he's not delighted in the simplistic praise of those who have just come to know him, but for those who are mature in Christ, who understand their salvation, God is highly delighted that His children know Him and understand some things about the life that He's given us in Christ, and we understand it because He's told us about them. I'm going to use an, an analogy that I want to take from Albert Martin. He used this analogy back in the 1960s, but it's still a good one. So follow along with this analogy. Imagine a man who is convicted and on death row, and he is awaiting his sentence to be carried out. He's a convicted serial killer and rapist, and he's awaiting execution. And you go into this man's cell cell to visit him, and you don't know what to expect when you go there other than a man who's been convicted and sentenced to death for serial murder, And so you enter into his cell, and to your surprise, you find that not only is he a convicted serial killer, but he's also blind. Can't see a thing. Not only is he also blind, but he's also deaf. Can't hear you. Well, then to your further dismay, you also learn that not only is he a convicted serial killer who's blind and deaf, but he's also in extremely poor health you can just tell just by looking at him that his body is ravaged with disease and sickness. There's not a healthy bone in his body. Not only that, he's severely malnourished. His bones are sticking out everywhere. He looks like a skeleton. He hasn't—he looks like someone who hasn't eaten a decent meal in months. Well, not only is he malnourished and, and his body is riddled with disease and sickness and he's blind and deaf, but he also is wearing rags because he has no money. He doesn't even have a change of clothes. He has one set of rags that he can wear and that's it. He has no resources for anything else. He doesn't have a home to go to. He's been homeless. He has no car. He has no uh, furthermore he has no job skills. There is nothing that this man has were he to be a free man. There's nothing that he has in terms of job skills that he could go somewhere and get a job. In addition to that, he's severely lacking in education. He can't read. He can't write. He has a second grade education. He cannot articulate anything. Now, what if you went to visit this man in his cell and your goal was to transform him into a helpful, useful, vibrant member of society, a contributing member of society, and you saw this man, you would immediately, immediately realize a lot of things have to happen in order for him to become this vibrant member of society. What would have to happen? He would need the work of, uh, well, first of all, a lawyer to look into his case and maybe see, well, maybe there's some evidence that was overlooked. Maybe there's this DNA evidence that could clear him. So you'd need a lawyer to who is skilled in the law, that would be willing to take that case. You would need a judge who would be willing to hear the case and declare him to be not guilty. But in addition to that, if he were declared not guilty and set free, he would still be the same man. So he would need, first of all, a doctor, to come and address the sicknesses in his body and to get his body healed from the sicknesses that are ravaging his body. He would need some kind of a healer, maybe, maybe a healing kind of eye doctor to restore sight to his, to his eyes. He would need a really good pair of, of, uh, hearing aids in order to be, to be fitted to him that he could hear properly. He would also need some education. He would need to be taught how to read and how to write. He would need some job skills. So he would need somebody who was Uh, some sort of a, uh, what's it called, occupational sort of person that would come and teach him a job skill that he could then go and actually have a chance of getting a job. In addition to that, he would also need some sort of a philanthropist that would come and give him some resources that he could have some changes of clothes and a place to live and maybe a car to get around in. Without those things, he's not really gonna be that vibrant member of society that we hope he would be. So you see, all the things that have to go into that man in order to transform him into the convicted serial killer that's blind, deaf, sick, malnourished, uneducated, and unskilled, awaiting his execution, a lot of things have to happen for him to be transformed. If he is only declared to be innocent, he's not transformed. He might be set free, but he's not transformed. That is an analogy of our salvation. That's an analogy of all the or at least some of the things that God does for us in our salvation. He doesn't just forgive us of our sins, but He transforms us in ways that are tantamount to the man that I just described. He takes away our sickness. He restores sight. He restores hearing. He nourishes us. He feeds us. He, he gives us education in Him, education in the truth. So many different things that God comes together to do for His children. Now, what if that same man, what if that transformation that I just described happened to him? And he then is now a a vibrant, contributing, healthy member of society. And you, who were the one that visited him in his cell on that dark night, and you sort of facilitated all this, you you begun this whole process, you said, this would really be a good story for people to hear about. I'm going to write an op-ed and just tell people about what has happened to this man. And so you write this op-ed. And in the op-ed, you mention all these people, the philanthropist, the occupational specialist, the, the person, the educator that taught him to read and write, the, you, you, talk, you mention all these people, the doctors and, and the person with the hearing aids, you mention all of them by name, but you get it all jumbled up. You say, well, so-and-so, this, this ear doctor, you say they did a wonderful job taking the case and researching and finding out that, yes, there was some evidence that was overlooked. And then the judge, the judge was just so helpful. The judge was so helpful when he taught him how to read and write. Oh, and this philanthropist that had all this money, he was just such a nice person that came along and taught him how to have this job skill that he could go and find a job. And then the people read that article and they say, what? Yeah, here's my name, but you got totally wrong what I did. That's kind of like, If you can follow the analogy, that's kind of like the modern church. When we praise God in a one-dimensional way for what He has done multidimensionally. And Paul's purpose here is to show us the whole diamond of our salvation, of our life in Christ. And he started with the facet of God's choosing. He begins by saying, every blessing is ours in Christ. And as He names those blessings, He turns to the facet of God's choice, then God's predestining, God's election, God's grace, God's love. In love He predestined us. Now He's turning to the next facet of redemption. and This is the facet. This is the side of the diamond which God did in order to bring about those things that He willed or desired or decided upon before He created anything. And so now that sort of sets the stage for us to begin thinking and talking about this concept of redemption. Redemption is one of the most beautiful words in the English language, is it not? It is a word that the church loves, and we use it a lot. If you listen to the church's music, then you hear that word redemption all the time, don't you? Sometimes it's used properly, sometimes it's not used properly. Sometimes redemption is used, and what is really meant is adoption. Or sometimes redemption is used, and what's really meant is glorification, or what sometimes redemption is used, and what's really meant is something totally different. And so we in the church, we kind of have gotten, should I say, a little bit lazy in how we think about what God has done for us. And we oftentimes misuse words to mean different things than what God gave to us? And you know that words are extremely important to our faith? Um, Our faith is built on words, right? Paul says to the Romans, hearing comes by faith and faith through the word of Christ, right? Our faith is built upon words. It's built upon God's word to us. Jesus says, I have given them your words, and so if God's words are this fundamental and this important to our faith, then we as God's people should endeavor to not only know those words, but also guard those words. And we in the ministry, we sort of see this as, as or at least I see, I'll i speak for myself, I see this as kind of my role. And many before me and many of my uh, contemporaries see this in the same way, that our role is, is kind of like a protector of the truth that God has given to us. God has given to us truth. And some of that truth needs to be precisely analyzed and studied in order to understand it properly, in order to see that facet of the diamond. And if we don't do that and we just let words sort of mean anything, you know that if you let a word mean whatever whatever you want, then very soon it means nothing? And God's words are far too precious to us for us to allow them to mean nothing. So we'll do this morning as we've done in the in the past, as we've been here in Ephesians, and let's spend some time thinking about this doctrinal concept. We've talked about election. We've talked about predestination. We've talked about God's love. We've talked about God's grace. Now we'll begin this morning talking about redemption, this word that is so fundamentally important to us as believers, but not only to us. Do you know that every religious system in the world is based on redemption? Every belief system that has ever existed is based on redemption. Every belief system has some sort of understanding about a deity or deities or some understanding about a life after this one. And all of those belief systems, whatever they may be, all of them, have some kind of understanding that we stand in need of either appeasing the deity or we stand in need for what we need for the next life. Every belief system that has ever existed has that as its building block. There is either a deity or there is a life after this one and we stand in need of something in order to be appeased to the deity or to be right in the next life. And that concept is, as we're going to see as we go through this, that concept is redemption. Every belief system in the world is based upon redemption. But here's the difference. Every belief system in the world believes redemption either comes by your efforts or your discovery. One of the two. Either your efforts can bring some sort of redemption for the next life or for the deity, or there's something that you need to discover that will appease the deity or prepare you for the next life. Every There's not a belief system that is not based on redemption. However, the true belief system, Christianity, is the only thing that understands that redemption is not something that you achieve or discover It's something that someone else has achieved and given to you.